0: Coming up on this week's podcast. Cinderella decided to go back to the sackcloth and rough homespun fabric that she had been using um, for clothing back then. The servants would have thought she was nuts, of course. Well, to choose the behavior other than what Peter mentioned today would be like Cinderella going back to sackcloth and ashes because our actions will reflect our hope when we are submissive in the public arena to those in authority over us. Stay tuned for more.
1: Welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message.
0: Anybody watched The Royal Wedding recently? I, I, I'm just going to tell you my daughter and I were glued. <laughs> Mostly to the hats. Those really amazing hats that went into that sanctuary before the wedding. Um, but it was a very interesting wedding um, from a lot of perspectives. But one of them was the fact that um, Will was marrying a um, commoner, which is the first time in 350 years, that a potential king married a commoner, that someone without a title to her name. And so that kind of made it uh, big stuff. Now, as soon as they got engaged, Kate went immediately into training. And so she was training to be a princess. And so she had to do all of these things and, and learn certain things. And one thing she had to learn was that everybody was going to be bowing to her once she became the royal princess. And so she had to learn how to respond. I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody started bowing to me... It would be awkward. And so she had to learn ways to be able to do that. Another thing that she had to learn was to not get out of the car without her legs being together. Now, this is a famous shot that poor Diana had taken of her. And um, and so there was a royal biographer, and this is what she reported. One of the most unusual things I was told, and something that Kate found creepy, (laughs) was that the palace advised her to watch footage of Princess Diana Just simple things like keeping your legs together when you get out of a car and not rising to the chance of the paparazzi who might be trying to deliberately upset you. That was their way of helping her train to be princess. So all of these things that she had to learn were to um, so that she could live the part of this position she was about to take on. Her life needed to reflect her future status. Well, as believers, we have that same responsibility. We have a responsibility for our lives to reflect the status that God has given us. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, a letter that uh, Peter wrote to Christians that were located in Asia Minor. And uh, yes, it's the same Peter that was the guy who doubted, uh, not doubted, sorry, that's Thomas, (laughs) who denied Christ um, in the courtyard of the high priest during his trial Uh, It's the same impulsive Peter that we've come to know and love. Well, he's the guy who wrote this uh, letter to the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. And one of the things that he wrote, and the part we're going to be covering today, is the relationships that reflect the hope that God has given us. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning. So let's take a look at Peter's instruction. Before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that Peter wrote so many years ago. And how it still applies to us today in the fact that we are people of hope. And we are people who have um, have a status with you as sons and daughters of your kingdom. And in that way, just like Kate Middleton, we need to learn to act the part. Um, the part that we've already been guaranteed. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us as we read your word this morning. That your Holy Spirit would enlighten us. And that we'd be able to understand the message that you have to say through these words Lord, get me out of the way. Don't let my words be a stumbling to anybody, but just uh, that would enhance our understanding and our application of this important truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's take a look at 1 Peter. You can turn to it in your Bibles if you like. I'm going to have it up here on the board as well. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that... By doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps Now, in the previous verse, if you remember, when Justin spoke two weeks ago in 1 Peter, Peter identified the believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So because of this true, we are no longer citizens of this world. Our citizen reps in the kingdom of God. So this is why, in, this, in verse 11, Peter called his readers aliens and strangers. They weren't aliens and strangers in terms of society. Uh, but they're alien strangers in terms of the fact that they belong to now to a heavenly kingdom, and, um, and so they should be acting appropriately. That word alien um, in the Greek uh, could be de- defined as one who lives in a place that is not his true home. So in verse 17, this concept was already introduced um, back in uh, chapter 1. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So that that kind of idea of expressing our our life here on Earth as your stay on Earth kind of gives that idea as well of being um, foreigners and aliens. So if we are people living out our hope, we have to consider our time on Earth temporary and conduct our life in light of eternity. Now, that knowledge might cause some people to want to go live as hermits. And you may know some people that are like that. I have one of my best friends from high school (laughs) She just has just pulled herself out of the world and just wants to, you know, only fellowship with Christians. She won't let her kids talk to anybody that's not a Christian and just totally um, pulled away from the world. But that's not what Peter's teaching here because Peter says, um, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So right away you get this implication of somebody who's living in with the Gentiles, the unbelievers, and so we need to... um, even though the society has a lot of countercultural things to our identity as uh, kingdom citizens, but Peter is instructing us, don't withdraw from that, but live among the unbelieving with behavior that's above reproach. So our lives should always fit the place we're headed to, not the place that we're living now, if that makes sense. All right, in the back of your bulletin, you're going to find an outline that has some blanks in it that you can fill on um, as we go along um, through the points of the rest of this part of the message. So... Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The first thing that Peter really discusses here in this letter is why we should be doing this. Why is it so important for our behavior to be so stellar and above reproach? Well, the first reason he gives is this. Your good deeds will silence the slander of God's name. He says, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, Christians back in those days were being accused of some pretty crazy things. And it's it's almost kind of humorous because the accusations really came from the Christian's own vocabulary. And that probably is true today in some respects. For example, uh, love feasts. That was a common phrase that Christians would use to talk about communion. They would also, um, of course, Christ's word, eat my body, drink my blood, right? And um, those kinds of concepts were foreign to the unbelievers and so when they would hear those words they would kind of contextualize them into what their pagan society would translate them as. So a lot of Christians were being accused of things like murder, incest because they called each other brother and sister and cannibalism, believe it or not. So because they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, they didn't understand the uh, kinds of things that uh, Christians do and so They misunderstood and they were slandering Christians at that time. The blameless behavior of Christians, Peter says, would put them to silence, those people that were doing slander. The second reason that Peter wanted um, good behavior was that our behavior would be positive understanding, bring positive understanding of God and ultimately bring him to glory. And the verse 12 says, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. It's all about winning the lost. It's all about introducing God to people who don't believe. We want to draw men to Christ, and we're called to be lights of the world. An example of the ways that maybe we're doing this today, I found an article um, on the Internet. It was written about six months after Katrina had hit the um, Gulf Coast. And this is what the lady wrote, while federal help is still just trickling into parts of the Mississippi Gulf in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, faith-based groups have been there since day one. They assisted with the cleanup and now they're helping towns rebuild. For many people, getting help from a non-profit group such as Samaritan's Purse is the only way to get their homes rebuilt right now. The volunteers are literally putting lives back together one nail at a time. So you can see how that kind of behavior was actually bringing focus onto these believers and ultimately onto God, who was their motivation. Jesus impressed that very same idea on his disciples. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So our good works are ultimately to bring um, glory to God's name. And that's a reason for good behavior among the Gentiles. And a third reason for um, good behavior is that it will express what we are, truly free. In uh, 2.16 it says, act as free men. Well, what are we free from? What are we free? What does that mean? Um, Peter uh, said in the beginning, in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he said, do not be conformed to the former lusts So we are free from those former things. And now in chapter 2, he's saying, but now act this way. So you've got kind of a negative, don't do this, the positive, do this. So we're free from the slavery of sin. Sin used to reign over us. We had no choice. We had no way of being able to deal with sin. But now we've been set free. Sin no longer has control, and we have a choice. What's our choice? Well, we can either live for God or live for ourselves. A, B, that's it. Those are the two choices in light of what we've given and in, um, in response to his great love and provision for us and our salvation. Of course, we want to respond in a way that we'd be living for him. Or sometimes we can choose to live for ourselves and we take our freedom and we brandish it like a weapon and we're causing destruction with it rather than um, doing the things that it was supposed to do. So those are our two options. We're going to either serve God or serve our flesh. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. There's two masters, and you have to choose. So I've got a a story that I thought of back um, in, uh, it's one of the greatest stories of college football. You can see that by their clothing, this was back in the 1920s, and it was the Rose Bowl game. And Virginia, uh, excuse me, Georgia Tech was playing UCAL, And it was a close game. The teams were evenly matched. But something interesting happened in the second quarter. Uh, Georgia Tech fumbled the ball at their 40-yard line, and the ball was scooped up by a guy named Roy Regals. He was a very skilled linebacker. So he turned to the left and started running with the ball to take it into his goal line, and he got knocked into another guy, and he got spun around, and he got disoriented, and he started running with that ball, but he was running in the wrong direction. So he started running toward the opposing team's goal line. Well, so his teammates, of course, were horrified. So they all started out after him. And so they were running. And and one teammate finally caught up with him, believe it or not, at the one-yard line and tackled him, or or at least got him to stop. And they tried to turn around and get him going in the right direction. But um, the other team came and Georgia Tech came and tackled him right away at the one-yard line. Okay, so now we have the next play. They tried to kick it off and get, get, get it out of there and um, Georgia Tech tackled them beyond the goal line and scored a safety, two points. So this poor guy had run the ball in for the other team basically. <laughs> um, on the, uh, so the final score of the game, 8-6. So that safety actually lost the game for his team. And then poor guy, Roy Regals, he, he uh, was named... Uh, wrong way regals for the rest of his life. (laughs) No one ever let him forget what had happened. You know, in the same way, when we choose to live for ourselves, we're inadvertently scoring points for the wrong thing. And that's exactly what Peter is going against. Our freedom is given to us to pick the right way, the better way, the way that pleases God and honor him. But it can be a battle. Peter called it a war. He said it was the fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul our real battle isn't with the people around us. Our real battle is with ourselves and those, those leftovers of the, our old nature that still exist in us. D.L. Moody said this, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I know. <laughs> and it's the truth. If we can get past this war, we can be doing pretty good. So there's a second way that we're free. The first is free from having to choose sin. The second is that we are free from the need to earn God's favor. Now, when my husband and I were dating, we were dating um, a long way from my home. Um, I had come down here to Maryland to teach at a little Christian school in Calvert County. And we started dating then and um, got engaged. And my husband hadn't ever met my parents. And so um, we were engaged and we were going to go up to see my parents on spring break and so Steve was very nervous about meeting my parents for the first time, and we headed up to the house, and he had a, real, he had a great plan in place how he was going to sit down and explain, you know, financially how he could take care of me as his wife, and he had all these, like, ideas about how he was going to be a good husband, and he had a whole thing ready to present to my father. Well, my father isn't really that kind of a guy, <laughs> which my husband was soon to find out. We got there pretty late the night, the first night, and so we pretty much just went to bed, um, said hello to my mother and went to bed because it was a real long trip and we were tired. They were up in Connecticut. Well, the second, um, the morning came, and we all sat down to have breakfast. And so we're, you know, making small talk and carrying on, and and, um, Steve was worrying about when he was going to get my father aside to talk to him about, you know, asking for... My hand in marriage, and so he, he had it already in his mind. When well, my my father pushes away from the breakfast table and he says, "So, what are you two getting married?" <laughs> and Steve was kind of caught short, and he said, "Well, uh, things were not going according to plan." He said, "I I I would really like to, you know, get a chance to, to sit down with you and talk with you and explain things, and and you know, and I, I'd like to be able to ask your permission per- per- permission to have your daughter's hand in marriage." And my father said, "Oh, you got it." You got it. So I think poor Steve was a little shocked, but in reality, okay, he had permission. Um, It was startlingly easy. (laughs) A little embarrassing for me. But anyway, (laughs) Steve now had the stamp of approval, and he could relax and start acting like my fiancé in front of my parents. Well, we already have approval from God. Peter spent the very first part of his letter talking about all the things that God's already done for us. Um, our sins have been paid for. Our debt's been wiped clean. Our fear, eternal future is secure. So our service to him, our behavior in the world that Peter's asking us for here is not about winning God's favor. You got it, just like my father would tell you. Okay, You have it. Peter's telling us now to start acting like you do. But you already have it. Our motivation will never, should never come from a fear of trying to earn God's approval. And I know I've said this from the platform before, but people do worry about this, and, and we all do. We all think, if I'm not doing this right, how is God ever going to love me or accept me? You got it. <laughs> the approval's there. So now that Peter's laid down the reasons, why behaving a certain way in society, now he gets into the specifics on how we are to behave. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. How do we do it? Well, the word submission is the key. I hate that word submission. Sorry, Lord. But sometimes, you know, it, 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 but I want to take a look for a little minute at the Greek, hupotasso, which is the, um, uh, the Greek that we translate into the word submission. It started out as a military term, And it meant to arrange um, troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So you kind of get this military idea of submission. But in a non-military sense, it was used a little bit differently. It was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, you know, when you you get uh, somebody to tell you what to do, and carrying a burden. So this is what Peter is asking us to do here. An attitude of giving in, cooperating, Assuming responsibilities and um, carrying a burden for someone. So, to whom are we supposed to do this? Well, he tells us to government authorities, slaves to their masters, and wives to their husbands. Now, these are pretty specific situations, but he gives the principles he gives in following these specific examples are applicable to just about any relationship that we have. So, we're going to take a few minutes to look at two of them this morning. Uh, in the remainder of our time, and then next week we're going to tackle the wives and husbands thing. Mm. Stay tuned. When we first decided we wanted to do 1 Peter, I said to the teaching team, I want three. I want chapter three. Because <laughs> oh, I've done a lot of study on it. Um, and obviously I'm the ideal wife, so you can learn. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, the first one. Is submit to every human institution. Peter said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, what does Peter mean by every human institution? Well, the Greek word is kittissis, and it means something that's created an institution and ordinance. Um, the writer Josephus from the first century, he used it very consistently when he referred to a governmental body or the founding of a city. So that's kind of the idea of this kind of a, an institute that's been um, put in place for society to keep order, to keep, um, to keep authority. So it makes sense, um, as Peter points out, that obeying the government authorities are akin to obeying God. Why? Because who set the government authorities up? God himself. God himself. In Daniel it says, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. So if he sets up the people that are in our government's authority it only makes sense that we would obey them. right? Now of course we obey them until they ask us to do something that goes against God and his principles. Like for example in Nazi Germany in the 40s. Well Obviously, you couldn't obey those kinds of things because um, it was wrong. But at the same time, God had allowed Hitler to come into authority. So as best we can, we need to obey that command. Now, this idea of of establishing a command of authority is all over the Bible. It's not just to the government. Um, In heaven, in heavenly places, it, it stands. First, among the angels. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude talk about the archangel. That word arch comes from arche in the Greek, which means first or foremost. So there's actually an order within the angels in heaven. There's also an order, we believe, among the redeemed in heaven. In Luke 19, uh, Jesus told the parable about servants that were in custody of their master's money, and each of them earned a different amount. One buried it and didn't get any credit at all, and others invested it and that kind of thing. And so at the end, he talks about that the master awarded their work with authority and more responsibility, and he's talking to his disciples. So most interpret that's what's going to happen when we get to heaven, that we will be rewarded with authority, with responsibility, based on how faithful we were here on earth. And even in the Trinity... There's an order to it. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Christ is the head of, of um, every... Oh boy, I've got, I've got... Did I put this down? Nope, I didn't. Sorry, I've, I've got a typo here. Christ is the head of every man, I guess, and the, and the man, the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. So even within the Trinity, there's an authority structure. It talks about all through the New Testament how Christ was obedient to the Father. So you get this idea of authority. So we wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised that God would establish authority um, here in our society for an orderly function of society in our human relationships. So a second relationship that Peter mentions, besides the government authority, is that servants should submit to their masters. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, for if the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Well, in order to really understand what Peter is getting at here, we have to understand who these servants are. Because um, some translations, if you have a Bible, it might be even translated as slaves, be uh, submissive to your masters. So what are they? Are they slaves, are they servants, what? Well, the Greek word, there's, there's no good word in English to translate wh- who he's talking to here. Um, uh, it's, there's two words for servant, slave. One is doulos and the other is oiketes. And it's not really a servant or a slave. It's somewhere in between. Slavery, um, slaves in the first century, they weren't just unskilled laborers like we might think of like in the 19th century um, that we had here in the United States at one time. But uh, they weren't unskilled, but they were managers. They were overseers. They were trained uh, members of society, professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians. And they were paid for their service. Um, And they could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. So it wasn't quite the same picture of a slave that we might have in our heads based on our country's history. But they were descendants of people who had been pressed into slavery when Rome came in and took over countries and and brought people in. Um, So their service was involuntary, and they weren't considered full and equal with the free man. There was also very extensive Roman legislation about the treatment of slaves, so they were protected somewhat under the law. So a word stronger than servant but weaker than slave kind of is a Appropriate, but there isn't anyone in the English language. But um, it would mean something like a semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. It was the most common kind of employer-employee relationship in the first century. So this affected a lot of people. And so this is, what, what, uh, this is who Peter is talking to. Well, what's his first admonition? Don't give a reason for mistreatment. Don't earn mistreatment and then go around thinking you're suffering for God. Don't bring it on yourselves. Because what happened was, when slaves were talked about, talking about um, as they accepted the gospel, and became believers, they were they were uh, thought about freedom. Freedom was a big word for slaves, of course it would be. And so they wanted that spiritual freedom. They thought it might guarantee their personal and political freedom. And they actually started creating. In, in society in some of the churches based on that idea. Paul even addressed this in his letter to the Corinthians. He wrote, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able to become free, rather do that. Um, there's another instance of Paul dealing with the issue of slavery, of a slave continuing to be a slave in the book of Philemon when he sends a slave home. So being treated badly as a consequence for disobedience or bad behavior. It does not honor God. So Peter's not talking about this. But he is talking about if you're mistreated for doing right and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In other words, no matter what your circumstances, no matter how fair your boss is, your master is, you are to uh, endure what they give you uh, with respect and in obedience and be submissive in authority. Whether they're treating us the way they should Or they shouldn't. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like this teaching so much. Because, like you, God has given me a sense of justice. um, Because it's part of who we are in his image. It's hard to swallow. I want everything to be fair. I hate when things aren't fair. I used to always say, that's not fair. My father would say, "Um, life's not fair. Yeah, he was something, my dad. But anyway... (laughs) really make me mad because he used to tell me you can't fight city hall because I was always going to write a letter or do something to something. So we're supposed to bear up or are under unfair treatment patiently. So, but it's so hard because God's put within us a sense of justice which doesn't allow us to simply forget wrongs for which we think there's not going to be any punishment. That's a hard thing to say. So Peter knew his readers were going to struggle. Of course, he's writing to slaves, and he's saying to them, be a good slave, no matter even if they're mistreating you. Be a good slave. This is the kind of behavior we want. And the slaves are saying, what? What are you talking about? I'm a free man. I'm free in Christ. Uh, now, Peter is one to write about this. It's kind of interesting because Peter was the first one who would have bucked up about the idea of suffering for anything. Um, If you remember back when Jesus was first telling his disciples that he was about to go uh, and be mistreated and falsely accused by the Pharisees and be brought before the Romans, he laid out the whole thing. He was going to suffer and be mocked and eventually killed and rise again on the third day. Told all of this, Peter took him aside immediately and he said, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter wasn't into the suffering thing. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter's the one that pulled the sword out from somewhere and cut off some guy's ear, a, a servant of the high priest. And, you know, he was going to defend Jesus, defend God, imagine that. And he was going to defend God and he was going to say, you know, you're not going to make him suffer. Peter was not into suffering, at least back at the beginning. But Peter had also witnessed Jesus enduring unjust treatment in his trials with both the Sanhedrin, the Roman authorities, he'd watched Jesus, an innocent man, hang like a common criminal on the cross between two other criminals and die the most shameful death that could be imagined. So he had seen all that. So what does he tell the slaves? Christ. He submits Christ as an example to suffering under unjust circumstances. Um, He tells them, remember, when you endure unfair treatment, you're only following the example that Jesus gave under similar circumstances because he was treated unjustly too. For you have been called for this purpose, Peter writes, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, So you get this whole idea of the unjust punishment that Christ had. And so he wants them to know you're following Christ's example in this. Well, and from the cross, Jesus prayed after going through all of this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He entrusted not only himself, but he entrusted the wrongdoers, the ones that were committing the sin, He entrusted his followers and the entire situation into God's hand. He didn't need to seek justice. He trusted that the Father was going to do that for him. He kept entrusting himself, Peter wrote, to him who judges righteously. There's actually uh, a couple of different verses in 1 Peter that uses that him who judges righteously phrase. Um, If you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to every work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay. And again in 4.19 he says, Therefore those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So both of these verses show that Peter is talking about God as a just God, and therefore we can trust him in these unjust circumstances to bring about justice. So, our excellent behavior, characterized by submission to both government authorities, characterized by submission, slaves to masters, and you can and, and move that into employee, employer. <laughs> um, and, and so what he's asking is putting yourself into the hands of God and trusting him to work out the circumstances. Your job is to stay submissive. It's a characteristic of someone who's free to make that choice. Um, And we have to choose God by submitting to our authorities out there in the world. Well, in closing, I want you to remember the story of Cinderella. It's one of my very favorites. You remember the ugly stepsisters that tortured her all the way through life, Um, the evil stepmother, the fairy godmother, of course the glass slipper that got left on the stairs, and then, of course, the handsome prince, who came and rescued her. Well, once she was risked away um, to the palace, she was probably dressed, as we can imagine, in beautiful garments, made the finest material the land had to offer. Now imagine, after being a princess for a few years, Cinderella decided to go back to the sackcloth and rough homespun fabric that she had been using um, for clothing back then. Well, the servants would have thought she was nuts, of course. Well, to choose the behavior, other than what Peter mentioned today would be like Cinderella going back to sackcloth and Ashes because our actions will reflect our hope when we are submissive in, um, in the public arena to those in authority over us. How we conduct ourselves in the world can give God an opportunity to show himself to the lost. Living out our hope in relationships is actually an amazing chance to draw people toward him.
1: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes And you'll get the next podcast in your sleep.